Our scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's tables. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all of this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and their prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today is the last day we're in this series on wrestling with the difficult words that Jesus has to offer. This series, Having Words with Jesus, is really about that. Feeling challenged by the words that Jesus has for us, uh, particularly through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and the Gospel of Luke is uh, hands down my favorite. It's so much better than the Gospel of John. It's no comparison. <laughs> I love the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but it, it really does present some difficult things we have to wrestle with. And last week we started talking about uh, how many of the challenging sayings and words of Jesus have to do with money. You know, things like sell all you have and give it to the poor. That's really difficult to hear. That's not something I feel like I would really want to do were it not for Christ. Today, we're going to look at how the other challenging, of word, challenging words of Jesus are pointed at religious people. Those were really the two things that Jesus had a lot to say about, money and religious people. And more specifically today, we'll be unpacking their overlap. So last week, we talked about why Jesus does speak so often about money, because it's a, it's a significant factor in how we exist in the world. But today, I want to ask, why do you think Jesus is so direct 
and confrontational with people who do have money, like a lot of money too. Why is Jesus so direct and confrontational with them? Yes, oftentimes true. Their, their wealth means more to them than God. Yes, they can have more impact, absolutely. What's that? Yes, because God is more important than money, and Jesus needs to drive that message home for the people. Uh, for, for me, I, I see this as uh, being so significant because, in the words of Uncle Ben from the Spider-Man comics, with great power comes great responsibility. When you have the ability to influence the lives of others, there's a great amount of responsibility that comes with that. And money is a source of power in our world. But, you know, we, uh, we have this notion that money is the root of all evil, uh, which is wrong, by the way. Uh, that's not what scripture teaches us. It's that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is neutral. It's a tool, a resource. It's something that can be uh, used to build up or something that can be used to tear down. Uh, it's the intention of the person with it that makes it what it is. And so that's why it's so significant for Jesus to approach people who have money. But there's uh, one other thing we have to turn our attention to today, and that's the religious people. You see, uh, if, we, if we don't look at this passage in context, which we always should, we should always put pass the, the scripture in context, not just rip it out there and use it to back up our points. But if we look in context, uh, we see that the words of our lesson today, Luke 16, 19 through 31, which Will so eloquently read for us today, come right on the heels of Jesus subduing the Pharisees. The Pharisees. You see... Uh, Last week, we started with the first part of chapter 16 and, uh, and you know, started to unpack how Jesus was talking about money. And right after this, we have these words. This is verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, yes, heard all of this and they ridiculed him, Jesus. So he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by humans is an abomination in the sight of God. This sets the context for our passage today. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, who, who are the religious elite. These are the people who, they know the Tanakh. The, uh, what we consider our Old Testament. They know it backwards and forwards and upside down. They can quote scripture at you like this. They know the law to the letter. They know this holy text. They are the people who are meant to be the examples of faith in the community. And yet they end up being the ones that Jesus challenges more than anybody else. They end up being uh, the people that Jesus presents these kind of challenging words to the religious people. And so I want to ask you one more question. Why do you think it is that Jesus most frequently challenges the religious people? 
Right. They, they, act like, they act like they represent God, but their actions say otherwise. Certainly. Yes, for them to be an example, absolutely. Israel was a chosen people for a purpose, chosen to be an example to all other nations about what it looks like for a whole people group to follow God. Yes. And then there's something even more basic in all of this. They're supposed to know. They're supposed to know the good way to live. These are the people, like I said, who know the scripture, backwards and forwards and upside down. They know the letter of the law. They know exactly what's in there and how they're supposed to behave, how they're supposed to live their lives, and they're not doing it. Very clearly, uh, Luke points out, the Pharisees are lovers of money. And how many times uh, do we have in scripture the caution against that? These are the people who, who they need to, they not only need to know, based on their training, but they do know passages like Deuteronomy 16, verse 17. Every person shall give as they are able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Every person should give, right? Yes. Uh, they, they should also know that the love of money leads to destruction. And they should know passages like Isaiah 56, verse 11 are directed right at them. Where Isaiah says, they are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. And the prophet Isaiah is one who's coming to the people, letting them know exactly why Israel ended up in exile. Right? They are supposed to be the ones who know this. They are the ones who understand that those who have money should use it as a tool to help. And they are the ones who should know that their religiosity means knowing the proper way to help with money. And this is why we have the passage before us today, and really the book of Luke as a whole. Luke is a political statement in gospel form. You see, the Jesus that we find in Luke is slightly different in character than some of the other Gospels. And this is the Jesus who is maintaining the same message of the prophets in the Old Testament, which is focusing on how humanity negotiates relationships between wealth and neighbor and God. We see through, all throughout Luke that God is on the side of the oppressed, the poor, the marginalized, and the downtrodden. That's what Luke is all about. God is on their side. And even at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus declares, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled. That's chapter 6, verse 20. We also, however, see throughout the book of uh, Luke's gospel how God judges those with means, wealth, privilege, and social status who ignore the poor and who make invisible the voiceless, the marginalized, and the minoritized. Just after the words of Jesus blessing the poor, Jesus then exclaims, But woe to you who are rich! 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. That's 624. Yes, the Jesus we worship is the one who challenges the status quo of our very economy. And so, I have to say this because this is the reality of the Jesus we see today. If you don't want the church to be political in nature, when its foundation is quite a political revolutionary, then you might need to find another Jesus. Jesus is very much into the politics of it all. And I don't mean like Democrat and Republican, not that kind of politics. Those are silly politics, worthless politics. I mean the kind that actually change societies. This is the Jesus who gives us the challenging parable we have today, one that is filled with such beautiful detail about the difference between the religious wealthy and the poor. So let's turn to our text today. We have before us two characters, right? Two characters. Who are they? The rich man and Lazarus, the poor man. Yes, we start out our text by seeing there was a rich man, da 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 da, da and at his gate lay a poor man. We have a rich and a poor man. We're going to see a couple more of these uh, opposites attract here. The rich man is dressed in purple and fine linens. The poor man is covered with sores. Sores so bad that even the dogs come to lick his wounds. The rich man feasts sumptuously. What a good word there. Feasts sumptuously, elegantly, extravagantly every day. The poor man longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table, the crumbs. The rich man died and was buried and ended up in Hades. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. Now, here's something we need to understand. Hades is not hell. Uh, this, is, this is a Jewish understanding here that's kind of blending with some Zoroastrianism and Greek culture. Uh, Hades is not hell. Hades is the place where every uh, dead person goes. When you die, everybody goes to Hades. Okay, this is just a little context here. There isn't some differing plane. But it's interesting because it points out that the rich man goes to Hades, which is where everyone else goes. Meanwhile, the poor man is elevated to a holy status and is right there with Abraham. The poor man doesn't go where everybody else goes. The poor man has an elevated status. Are you starting to see the irony here? The rich man had the elevated status and was lowered to the place where every common person goes. The poor man had the low status of common people, even less than that, and was elevated to holy status. And then there's one other thing here. The rich man is unnamed. And the poor man, we know, is named Lazarus, which means God is with me. This is like the biggest slap in the face to any wealthy person in the world. Uh, particularly considering our social context here. Your name is everything. 
Jewish people have, have always prized themselves on the, the significance of a name. That's why we talk so much about what their names mean. But the rich man isn't even named. Jesus lowers his significance to an unnamed average Joe. Meanwhile, the poor man is given a name, but not just any name, the name that says, God is on my side. This is the story presented before us. What a beautiful depiction we have here of these opposites interacting and Jesus driving a point home about wealth and about religiosity. Because remember, this is directed at the Pharisees. And so this rich man in Hades, seeing that there is no escape for him, after begging Abraham to, uh, to allow Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come and cool his tongue, sees that that's not possible, sees that there is no hope for him, he begs Abraham to let Lazarus go to his father's house and tell his brothers about what's, what's going on so that they might listen to him and not end up in the same place that the rich man ends up in. To which Abraham seems to know that they won't be convinced. They won't know that that's what's going on. He, I mean, this is, this is fascinating. He says, uh, Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. We like to think that if, if God just wrote in the clouds in the sky or did some crazy miracle in our lives, we would be all bought in. But it never quite works that way. That's because we need a little bit more to be convinced. Yes, a little bit more than a miracle to be convinced. Being convinced is a... Uh, an odd psychological phenomenon, because we don't like it. We don't like to be persuaded about some different opinion or perspective or way of living. That's why people get so hateful around uh, you know, these hot button topics or why people get so aggressive whenever it comes to like voting season and stuff like that. Make sure you're registered to vote. And <laughs> we don't like to be persuaded particularly when things are going well for us. It takes a lot. One of my favorite stories of persuasion, of a person being convinced that they were wrong, comes from the uh, dramatically underrated Disney movie, The Emperor's New Groove. It, I, if you have Disney+, Plus, go home after this and watch it. It is spectacular piece of art. I mean, it is just phenomenal. Uh, the storyline, the humor, oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's up there, like right below Lion King for me whenever it comes to significant cinematic experiences. The Emperor's New Groove, for those of you who haven't seen it, and I'll try not to spoil everything about it because you have to watch it. The Emperor's New Groove is about an emperor named Cusco who rules over all the known world of the, I think it's like Aztec civilization somewhere in Peru. Is Peru Aztec? Yeah? Okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, and, and it's about to be his birthday. And for his birthday celebration, he wants to build a massive pool resort 
for himself. And he's picked out the perfect place to do it. A hill just far enough away from the palace that is kind of a retreat center. But before he does it, he needs confirmation that this is the best place to do it. And so he welcomes in a peasant named Pacha, who lives atop this hill where the building is planned to be. And Pacha comes in, and they have this little dialogue where, uh, where Cusco, the emperor, is asking, like, what do you think about living on top of this hill? Is it nice? And Pacha says, yeah. I mean, when the sun hits this spot just right, the hills just sing. And Cusco says, all right, cool, done. And Pacha says, what? What did you bring me all the way out here for? And Cusco says, I was just looking for confirmation that this was the right place to build my pool. Without even realizing that Pacha and his entire family and the rest of that village are going to be completely displaced with nowhere else to go, starting on Cusco's birthday. And then, through some really weird turn of events, the emperor gets turned into a llama. I'll let you go and watch it to figure out how on earth that actually happens. But he gets turned into a llama and ends up having to journey from this village back to the palace with Pacha, the peasant. And along the way, we see his heart start to soften. We see him start to experience what it's like, not only to be among the peasants, but to be unwanted himself, to be unloved himself, to be something that people see as just common, like a llama. And we get to the, the end of the movie, and it's a feel-good movie, don't worry, but I won't tell you exactly what happens. But we get to the end of the movie, and we see, in the last moments, Cusco being convinced that his decisions, his choices in life, weren't quite right, that they were going to be harmful to other people, that they were going to cause great distress for the people who were poor whenever he has everything, all the riches of the world. Go home and watch The Emperor's New Groove, and you'll learn a lot about persuading people. But if uh, for some reason you don't take my advice and go home and watch this movie, then I'll let you know a little bit about what it takes to convince a person, scientifically speaking, that is. And so we start with the question, what is enough to convince us to live a certain way for other people? What is a enough for us? We like to say that the Bible is enough for us. We have that cute expression, the Bible tells me so, so this is how it's supposed to be. But one thing I've noticed in ministry is people only use the expression, the Bible tells me so, whenever it's to hurt somebody, whenever it's to be hateful. It's never, the Bible tells me so, whenever uh, we're going to sell all of our possessions and give it to the poor, or welcoming the stranger into our homes, or things like that, right? So, for some reason, the Bible really doesn't convince us to radically change our lives. Just enough that we can still be comfortable, but we feel good about ourselves whenever we go to church and stuff like that. It's not quite enough. And that's 
a little bit perplexing because we say the Bible tells me so and we say that this is an authority in our lives, but it doesn't really change us enough. So I started doing some of my own research on the psychology of persuasion. Fascinating stuff, by the way. And there's a psychologist by the name of Dr. Robert Cialdini. And uh, his, he went on this excursion to identify that there are seven different principles that play a role in us being convinced about something. The first is authority. This is the idea that people follow the lead of credible and knowledgeable experts. The second is social proof. People will look to the actions and behaviors of others in order to figure out what their own actions need to be. They kind of follow what others do, keeping up with the Joneses, as it were. The third, reciprocity. People feel obligated to give back to others, to reciprocate to others uh, in the form of a behavior, gift, or service that they first received that can convince us to do something if somebody else did something for us first. The fourth is liking, which simply says people prefer to say yes to those that they like. Simple as that. The fifth is scarcity, which is people want more of the things that they can, have, they can only have less of. The fifth is commitment and consistency, which is that people like to be consistent with the things they have previously said or done. We don't like to change our minds about things. If I said, this is who I am, then that's probably going to be who I am. And the seventh is unity. People are much more likely to say yes to someone that they consider one of them. Right? We have the us and them mentality, and we are more easily persuaded by people we see as one of our own. So these are the seven principles of persuasion. I hope that you'll use these responsibly uh, if you were even paying attention to them at all. Yeah, there's a lot of psych psychology going on here. If you want a list of these, I'll be happy to give it to you. But we look at these seven principles of persuasion and we see that we're not likely to simply be convinced by Scripture. See, Scriptures and their authors are what we would consider to be authorities. It would make logical sense that we would listen to authorities because they're experts, but have you noticed that's not what we do? For instance, we have scientists who are telling us that there's a climate crisis going on, but we kind of push them to the side and ignore them. We also were told by scientists at the beginning of the pandemic that we should wear masks because COVID was much worse than the cold or flu, but we didn't really listen to them. We kind of did because it was like socially uh, understood that we should, but we didn't really like to, and we certainly didn't want to inconvenience our own lives. Now, these among others, I'm not trying to bring this up because I think you should stand on a particular side of these things uh, or of these conversations, but rather just to point out the reality that just because an authority tells us to do something doesn't mean we're going to do it, right? Whether it's right or wrong, if an authority is telling us to do something, we need a little bit more convincing than just an authority. So what that's telling me uh, is that Scripture as an authority might not be enough for us to be convinced. And I find it particularly interesting that Abraham tells the rich man that if his brothers don't listen to the authority of Moses and the prophets, then they won't be convinced by someone rising from the dead. 
But I see that this is because of the other six principles of persuasion. We have many other things that influence the way we live our lives. Take the rich man, for example. The rich man did not care for Lazarus because he did not have the social proof of others doing it. He wasn't seeing people like him going around helping the poor. He was seeing people with wealth like him going around and buying luxurious mansions and stuff like that. I don't, whatever you spend your stuff on in you know, the 10th year of CE, whatever. The rich man did not have any kind of reciprocity from Lazarus. Lazarus couldn't do anything for him. In fact, Lazarus was more of a burden to him than anything else. So there's no reciprocity. Uh, the rich man also didn't really like Lazarus. He's sitting at his gates. That's very inconvenient for a rich person to have a poor person sitting at their gates. That's when we call the police, right? Additionally, the rich man notices that there is not really a scarcity of poor people around him. Plenty of poor people. Why do we need to address this one? Then we note that the rich man was committed to the consistent behaviors that he had developed over his life. My money is mine. I'm going to use it for what I want to do with it, not anything else, no matter how well I know the scriptures. And then we see that the rich man did not feel any unity with Lazarus, who was clearly not part of his in crowd. So although the authority of Scripture is telling him that he should do this thing for Lazarus, care for him in his life, the other six principles aren't convincing enough for him. And it might not be for us. So what will convince us? What could possibly convince us to care for the poor? Because there's one more thing that we need to note about this. The rich man was a man of faith, but not a man of action. He wasn't somebody who did the scriptures. Believe them, sure. Live them, not so much. And it didn't work out so well for him. So let's put ourselves in, this shoe, in, in his shoes and ask, what will convince us? I'm hoping that our challenge for today might be a good place to start. My challenge for us today and this week is to be on the side of the poor. Be on the side of the poor. Be the example that others need for their social proof in order to help the poor. Ignore the need for reciprocity and simply care for the poor because the same grace was extended to us by Christ. Grow a fondness for the poor and get to know them. You might find you actually like them. Recognize that the real scarcity in our world is kindness and generosity. Develop new commitments and consistent behaviors like caring for the poor constantly. Recognize that the poor are our people. We are united with them in Christ. And understand that the authority of Christ in Scripture, which demands that we care for the poor, is most important for the people who claim to be religious. Be on the side of the poor, and you will be on the side of God. Let us pray.